Well, good morning, church family. Uh, greetings from uh, the 18 of us that were up at the Glenkirk Men's Retreat at Thousand Pines. Um, can I say some of the guys in this church snore? Um, and so, including me, I'm guilty. But um, yeah, we had a great time. Um, and uh, be sure and ask those who went. Um, they're going to want to tell you about the fact that Darren Richer won the push-up contest, that um, two of the guys from our group made the final four in, um, in Texas Hold'em. Um, they're going to want to tell you about all those things and the uncomfortable beds, but um, ask them about the message and about the ripple effects um, of their decisions in their life. And so we, we had a great time. And so um, the rest of them come back later today. I came back last night um, just because I had, had to be here this morning. Um, a couple of other things. Um, when you came in, hopefully you picked up this uh, reformed seven-week discipleship groups. If you didn't, you can get one on your way out. This is a, a small group study for you um, during the next seven weeks of our discipleship groups. And this is for you to, to study on your own. Um, our groups launch this week, um, but um, whether you're in a group or not, I encourage you to pick one of these up. Um, each week has three um, devotional opportunities for you to do Bible study and Lexio Divina. And so please pick one up. And then I also want to remind us that during the month of October, um, GTI Hope has been doing their, it's going to do their final push on their um, used books and Bibles drive. And they have a, um, a table set up out on the patio and you can get more information there. Um, maybe you have heard the saying, revenge is sweet. We're, we're drawn to stories about evening the score, whether it's Charles Bronson in the 1970s Death Wish movies, some of you remember those, or whether it's Keanu Reeves as John Wick. But most people who taste revenge discover that it doesn't taste nearly as sweet as they thought that it would. How do you react when someone wrongs you? To the driver who cuts you off, the coworker who stabs you in the back, or the church member who assassinates your character, to the ex who cheated on you, or the person who unfairly judges you. How do you react when people wrong you? We're in a series that we're calling Reformed through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And as I mentioned, this week, we start our seven-week Reformed discipleship groups to begin to apply what we're learning. And today, we're going to talk about reforming our reactions to people when they wrong us. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kate gave a great message about anger and reconciliation. Her, her message focused on those situations where we are the ones at fault in harming or hurting another person. What do we do as disciples of Jesus when our anger gets the best of us and we say hurtful words to someone or even about someone? What do we do as disciples of Jesus when we're getting ready to go to church and we're, we're preparing to bring our offering before God and we suddenly realize that we have done something to harm another person. Pastor Kate helped us understand how the practice of reconciliation can break the cycle of anger. And if you missed that Sunday, I encourage you to watch it on our website or on our YouTube channel. 
Well, today's message is the flip side of Pastor Kate's message from two weeks ago. What happens when we're on the receiving end? When someone lashes out at us at anger or lies about us or does something to harm us? We've been formed into the kinds of people who react to those situations with a desire to get even, to retaliate. But how does Jesus want his disciples to react? To find out, let's stand as we listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I want to remind us again that there were two distinct groups of people who heard Jesus when he taught this. The, the first group was the people in the crowd. Every person in the crowd had their own unique reason for being drawn to Jesus. When Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 says that the people in the crowd were amazed. They were mesmerized by the Sermon on the Mount. And yet most of the people in the crowd remained in the crowd. The other group was much smaller, and those were the disciples of Jesus. The disciples were the men and the women who had come out of the crowd to trust Jesus and to follow Jesus. The disciples were people who set aside their own agenda for seeking Jesus in the first place and who adopted the agenda of Jesus. And they became his disciples, his followers, his students, his apprentices. And throughout this series, I've suggested that many people who go to church today are more like the crowd than the disciples. I've been struck throughout this series by Dietrich Bonhoeffer's phrase in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that the people in the crowd wanted grace without discipleship. They wanted the benefits of the grace of God without responding to the call of Jesus, to follow Jesus. They wanted the kingdom Jesus was proclaiming without actually entering into that kingdom. Are you and I more like the crowd or the disciples? 
In verses 38 through 42, Jesus talks about getting even. The traditional teaching of the Old Testament was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You'll find this teaching in Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 19 in the Old Testament. A couple of years ago, an American politician said this was his favorite verse. The malforming cycle that Jesus identifies here is what he calls resisting the evil person. And then the reforming practice Jesus gives is to respond to evil with good. So let's dig into what Jesus is saying here. The phrase eye for eye and tooth for tooth represents the Old Testament teaching that our response to evil ought to be proportionate to that evil. This is sometimes called the law of retribution. And the law of retribution stood at the very heart of ancient Israel's legal system in the Old Testament. The law of retribution stipulated that society's response to injustice should not go any further than that injustice itself. Back in Genesis, the Bible tells us a guy about a guy named Lamech. Now, Lamech was a real piece of work, as you read about him. He's the very first man in the Bible to marry more than one woman, the very first polygamist. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, Lamech boasts to his two wives that he killed a man just for injuring him. And then Lamech goes on to boast that anyone who wrongs Lamech, that Lamech will respond to that person 77 times more severely than the wrongdoing itself. God gave Israel the law of retribution because of the Lamechs of the world. In the ancient world, the law of retribution restrained violence. It compensated for injuries and it curbed disproportionate responses to injustice. Under the, this law, Lamech would have been held accountable so this command was a good thing because it curbed disproportionate violence in a very violent world. But now that Jesus has brought God's kingdom from heaven to earth, he says to his disciples, do not resist the evil person. And the word Jesus uses for resist here implies the use of force or coercion. In fact, the Roman or the Jewish historian Josephus uses this same word Jesus uses here as a technical term for Jewish people who joined the resistance movement in order to fight against the Romans. Rather than reacting to evil with proportionate force, as was permitted by the Old Testament law of retribution, Jesus tells his disciples that they should not use force at all in their response to evil. Now, immediately our gut reaction is, wait a minute. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that. I mean, what if I can stop someone who's committing a crime by using force? Or what if someone attacks my family? Or what about Christians who serve in the military or in law enforcement? And I'll talk about all those things in just a minute. But let's pause and pay attention to the fact that for some of us, our first reaction 
to the words of Jesus is to look for exceptions. Where is that reaction coming from? How have we been formed by our society and sometimes our families and sometimes our churches to that reaction? Because instead of giving us exceptions, in verses 39 through 42, Jesus gives us examples, illustrations. And each illustration pictures a situation where a disciple of Jesus might be tempted to use force to resist an evil person. The first example in verse 39 is our reaction to violent insults. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Now, being struck on the right cheek implies being on the receiving end of a backhanded slap because people would slap with their right hand. And in Jesus's culture, a backhanded slap was as much of a public insult as it was an act of violence. So the evil person in this illustration is someone who insults us in a public backhanded slap. And to resist that person would be to react by slapping them back. And the Old Testament law of retribution permitted this as long as we did it proportionately, a slap for a slap. But Jesus says, instead of reacting by slapping the person back, Disciples should react by turning their other cheek as well. Now, this does not mean backing down or running away or being a coward. Bible scholar N.T. Wright points out that offering the, our other cheek is a way of looking the person square in the eye as their equal as someone who will not accept that public insult. Offering the other cheek is a way of reacting by asserting ourselves without Violence. The second illustration in verse 40 is our reaction to a wrongful lawsuit. If someone is wrongfully suing a disciple for your shirt, Jesus says, go ahead and give them your coat as well. Now, back then, people would usually only wear two articles of clothing, a long shirt and then a long cloak or long tunic or coat. And so if someone literally obeyed Jesus here, they'd be left in their underwear or worse. So perhaps Jesus is exaggerating to make his point, but the evil person here is someone who brings wrongful legal action against you in order to take something that you have and they want. Resisting the person would be to react by doing the same to them. Non-resistance would be to react by giving the person above and beyond what they're demanding. The third illustration in verse 41 deals with how we respond to our rights being deprived. In Roman law, a Roman soldier was permitted to force a civilian to carry their pack for a mile. That's as far as they could force you for a mile. You might remember that Roman soldiers forced a man named Simon to carry Jesus's cross when he couldn't carry it any longer. The people of Jesus' day deeply resented the Roman government, and they especially hated it when Roman soldiers would invoke this law and force them to carry a load for a mile. And so the evil person in this example is a government official requiring to do something that you don't like or agree with. 
resisting the evil person would be to refuse or maybe to fight back with the soldier. But Jesus says that his disciples will carry the load twice as far as they are required, two miles instead of one. Bonhoeffer says that Jesus is telling us that we shouldn't cling to our rights as if they were our own personal possessions. Verse 41 is where we get the phrase, going the extra mile. The fourth illustration in verse 42 is about our reaction to people asking us for something. Give to the one who asks you. When people we don't know ask us for something, we worry that they'll misuse it. Maybe they're drunk. Maybe they're conning us. And we've been formed to react to those requests to give by maybe pushing them away or judging them as being lazy or telling them to get a job. But instead, Jesus says to give. Now, the fifth century African theologian, Augustine, pointed out that Jesus doesn't say to necessarily give them what they're asking for. Jesus' point seems to be to respond to their need. The final illustration in verse 42 is our reaction to someone who wants a loan. Don't turn away the person who wants to borrow money. And some Bible scholars have, have argued that the phrase turn away really means charging interest here. And if that's the case, the meaning would be don't charge interest on a personal loan to a person. Now, these five illustrations make us uncomfortable but they give us concrete examples of the kind of situations Jesus has in mind when he says, do not resist an evil person. Instead of giving us exceptions, he gives us examples. We reform our reactions by responding to evil, by doing good. Responding to evil, not by getting even, but by doing good. This is the opposite of how our world has formed us to react. We have been formed to want to settle the score, retaliate. Now, does this mean a Christian should never use force in responding to evil? And there are Christian groups like the Mennonites and the Amish and Brethren churches that say Christians should never serve in law enforcement or in the military because of Jesus' teachings here. I've been friends with a Brethren in Christ pastor for more than 30 years who believes this, and I have tremendous respect for him and tremendous respect for those groups. But I respectfully disagree with them. I don't think Jesus' teaching here completely rules out responding to evil with force in certain circumstances. When I was pastoring my first church, I, I served for 12 years as a police chaplain. And I'll never forget the night of my first ride-along as a chaplain. We're getting into the police car and the, the, the officer showed me how to access the shotgun. And then he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, if I get in trouble, do you have my back? And, and I realized in that moment that I can decide to turn the other cheek for myself, but I have no right to make that decision for him or for any other person. So I said, yes, I have your back, even if it means using the shotgun. When my son, Ethan, joined the Navy, um, when he turned 18, he asked me how I felt about him joining the military, and I told him I was proud of him. But then we had some long and serious conversations about use of force and the teachings of Jesus. 
We, we talked a lot about what's called just war theory, a Christian approach to theology that tries to give definition to when force is appropriate and when it's not. So there might be rare situations where using force is appropriate to respond to evil. But again, and I can't emphasize this enough, if you find yourself fixated on looking for the exceptions to Jesus' teaching, I want us to consider where that might be coming from. And what is it saying about how we have been formed in our world? Now, how we respond to evil with good will vary from situation to situation. The examples Jesus gives us are not intended to be exhaustive. They're simply illustrations. In every situation, we need discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit, input from other disciples of Jesus, and the guidance of the wisdom of God's word about how to respond to evil with good in that particular situation. I love what Dallas Willard says. Uh, he wisely says that in every concrete situation, instead of asking ourselves, did I do the specific examples? We should ask ourselves, am I the kind of person those examples are describing? We can only break the cycle of retribution, of responding to evil with evil by becoming people, by being reformed as people who react to evil with good. See the same pattern when it comes to our enemies in verses 43 through 48. The, the traditional teaching is to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Leviticus 19.18 in the Old Testament commanded Israel to love their neighbors as themselves. But Israel interpreted this command to only apply to loving other people within Israel. They reasoned that their neighbors that they were supposed to love were only fellow Jewish people. And so they felt free, even obligated at times, to hate the enemies outside of Israel, to hate the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and the Hittites. And by fulfilling the Old Testament, remember Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament, Jesus is filling it out and revealing its true intent. And he's telling us that hate, even hatred for our enemies, is a malforming practice that holds us back from living as his disciples. Now, it feels natural to hate those who hate us, to hate the person who harassed your spouse at work, to hate the person who tried to con your elderly mother out of her savings, to hate the person who breaks into your house and robs you. I've been reading Esau McCulley's new memoir called How Far to the Promised Land. And Esau is a pastor, a New Testament scholar at Wheaton College and a columnist for the New York Times. And Esau talks about his experience growing up with a father who was physically abusive to his mom and he and his siblings and how he grew up to hate his father. Esau says that hate is such a simple emotion. It gave me a sense of clarity and moral superiority. But as an adult, Esau would learn that his hate was holding him back from living as a disciple of Jesus. If we only love those who love us, we're no different than the people in the crowds who stayed there. 
Everyone loves people who love them back. Bonhoeffer says that that kind of love is self-evident, regular, natural, but not distinctively Christian. If we only love those who love us, there's nothing unique or distinct about being a Christian. We reform our reactions by showing God's generous love to those who wish us harm. Showing God's generous love to those who wish us harm. The cycle of hatred is just as malforming as the cycle of lust, anger, and dishonesty. Hatred is a cycle that perpetuates more. Now, loving enemies does not always mean being reconciled to those who harm us. Every situation is unique. Sometimes we have to love from a distance because a situation or a relationship is dangerous. Just as responding to evil takes discernment, so does loving our enemies. We need the input of other followers of Jesus, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the wisdom of God's word. Perhaps no other part of the Sermon on the Mount is more challenging for us to accept and to live as these verses. It's no wonder that many Christians have tried to find ways that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to Christians. Because we have been formed by our culture and our world to be the kinds of people who react to the people who wrong us by wanting to get even and who react to our enemies who wish us harm with hate. It feels natural, righteous even. But you know, no other part of the Sermon on the Mount describes the way Jesus lived more than these words. When Jesus was attacked by evil people, he didn't resist. He was slapped and spit upon, falsely accused, beaten, ultimately executed by the government. Yet the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, 8, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Jesus lived this. I read about a politician who once said, yeah, and what did it get Jesus killed by his own government? But the question, what did it get Jesus, is the wrong question to ask. The, the better question to ask is, what did it get us? Because Jesus reacted this way and lived this way, we can enter the kingdom of God now. We can be reconciled with God. We can come out of the crowd and be forgiven and empowered with the Spirit of God to live as followers of Jesus. We're adopted into God's family. Yes, it got Jesus killed. But through that death that we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper, we have received everything. Our reactions to being wronged can prevent us from living as devoted disciples of Jesus. The malforming cycle of wanting to get even and of hatred for those who hate us has to be broken by reforming practices of responding to evil with good and loving our enemies. Just look around and you'll see so many people who call themselves Christians 
living like those in the crowd, obsessed with getting even, retribution, revenge, hating those who disagree with them. Maybe it's time for followers of Jesus to come out of the crowd, to trust and follow Jesus, and to be reformed. Let's pray. Father, these words are so challenging to us and yet so practical and relevant. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we look for the exceptions immediately and help us be the kinds of people who seek to be the illustrations, the examples of it. And as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. As son of God, he could have responded to evil with force. We were enemies of God in our sin. And you could have responded with hostility. And yet you responded with love. And each month we remember and receive grace because of how Jesus lived these words. May we live them too. Amen.